Yeah, wow, he is mighty to save. It's a privilege, a joy to be here um, this morning and to be opening the word on the topic of missions, uh, a topic that my wife, Nicole, and I are very passionate about. Nicole and I have two little boys, Colton and Peter, and, and together as a family, we believe God is calling us to take the gospel to peoples and places where there's no gospel access. And uh, next steps for us is in August, we'll be heading out to Mexico for uh, 10 months of training through a program called Radius International that focuses on training long-term church planters among unreached language groups. And then uh, uh, we'll be heading overseas. We'll be back for a little bit and heading overseas indefinitely after that. And and that's our, our passion and our heart. And I'm excited to be able to share a little bit more about, um, yeah, about that passion and about uh, what we see in the word regarding missions, if you will. <clears throat> we, just first a little bit about us, we've been attending here at Windsor Community Church about five years. Um, I was looking back through the calendar and some emails to find out exactly when that was, and it's almost five years to um, this week. And and that's significant to us because we came here out of a very difficult season in Greeley where we have felt God's call towards missions for a long time. And and we moved to Greeley with some friends. We're like, let's see the refugee community in Greeley reached for Jesus. And um, we, uh, for a number of reasons, we weren't really sent out under a church. We didn't have um, really like clear leadership in the team, but primarily we had uh, maturity issues. We were not ready, and we fell right on our face. And that was an extremely difficult season for us of God just peeling back layers and humbling us. And uh, I, I believe God led us in that direction. And, and some of it I still don't quite understand, but I know He used it to humble us, and He gives grace to the humble, and it's a huge step in our journey because he led us here. And I just remember talking to Nicole and being like, I think God is leading us to just join a local church, submit ourselves to them, be discipled, and in three to five years, we'll reevaluate. So here we are five years later and getting ready to be sent out. We were discipled uh, through CTO, Call to Obedience, which was huge in our lives. I went through the two-year leadership training program with the church, which is another instrumental piece of um, just just a, a huge blessing for us. And now I'm working for the church in a missions internship position to help the church establish like a pathway for sending out future missionaries and to give us some time and space to prepare. So I'm very grateful for that. If you do want to follow along with our journey, we have a sign up, a newsletter sign up out on the connect table. So that's one way to do it. Or you can always just reach out to me through Realm. But I didn't come here to... um, talk about myself, nor did you come here to hear about me. We came here to open God's word together. So let's do that. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20 will be our text if you want to start opening there. This passage has been a deep comfort and encouragement to me as we take steps towards uh, obeying what we believe God has put in front of us to move cross-culturally and there's, there's times, especially as the timeline is creeping up on us, that the reality sets in in a new way, and you're kind of taken aback again. Like, are we really doing this? Like, we're moving to Mexico for 10 months, and then probably somewhere crazier after that. Like, are we really discerning God's voice correctly? And then the reaffirmation of God's call and, and, and being comforted again in, in, in um, God's direction in our life through our elders or just through God's... Um, 
uh, encouraging us through the word. Or, but uh, yeah, we've experienced the ups and downs of those anxieties and those questions, again, with the, um, the confirmation of God's call. And, and studying this passage has been a deep well of, of comfort and affirmation and encouragement to me in this particular season, and I'm grateful to, be, to have been able to steady it this last month or so. <clears throat> and secondly, it's left me more convinced than ever that the church together should embrace a central role in seeing the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. I don't know if some of you can relate to like the ups and downs I've talked about. If you've ever had a time where you felt sure of God's call in a particular direction. And then as you're going into it, you're like, whoa, wait a second, this is crazy, this is hard, and the ups and downs, but then, nope, this is what God has for us. Um, and my goal in this sermon is that as we look at this passage, which is particular towards missions, if we look at this, as we look at this passage, that we will exalt together in the authority of Jesus Christ in such a way that it leads us towards courageous obedience to the Great Commission. Let me say that again. My goal in this sermon is to help us together as we look at this passage to exalt in the authority of Jesus Christ in such a way that it drives us towards courageous obedience to the Great Commission. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the passage. Father, I pray that you would allow me and you would allow us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to point them towards you and to see you in a deeper way, to see your glory, to rejoice in who you are, what you've done for us and what you've called us to do. Father, would your spirit work through me as I speak and in your body? And I pray this in your name. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we walk through this passage, we're going to make a number of observations. We're going to specifically highlight four key truths. And then we'll ex explore some specific application points and briefly look at example of obedience from church history. But jumping right in, in the first part of verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them. Jesus said to them. And if you look in, in your Bibles back to verse 16, we can see who that them is. It's the 11 disciples, Judas having betrayed Jesus. The 11 disciples together that Jesus was talking to. He could have spoken this command. He could have said, Thomas, you go to all the nations and make disciples. Peter, stick around. But he didn't. He said to all the disciples this command. And this command wasn't uh, a command to an individual disciple it isn't a command to an individual member of a church or to several church members. It's a command to the church together. It's a corporate command. It's to the church together that God has given the privilege and the responsibility to see the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. So does this claim then mean that we all must pack up and go overseas? No, we see biblically that some will go. Some will have the particular call like Paul who says in Romans 15, 20, that he has an ambition to preach the gospel not where Jesus has been named. 
He had a particular drive to see Jesus preached among peoples and places where Jesus was not yet named. And then we see that some will send. Third John talks about those who are traveling and testifying of the truth. And, and John uh, commends the church to support these workers, quote, that we might be fellow workers for the truth. So some will go, some will send, but we all as a church are fellow workers in seeing this commission accomplished. So what did Jesus say to them, to this group? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is our first truth, that Jesus has total authority over all spiritual and all natural powers, even in the middle of suffering and even in death. I think it's helpful if we, if we back up a little bit and, and think of what might have the disciples been feeling or thinking in this moment. The disciples had this expectation. We see in Scripture that Jesus was coming as a king, that he was going to come and he was going to establish the kingdom of Israel. He was going to deliver the people from the Roman oppression. He was going to reestablish the glory days of the kingdom. And we know this was, <clears throat> at least in part, their mindset even after the resurrection. Because in Acts, right before Jesus ascended, in, in chapter 1, verse 6, they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So we know this is their mindset, and I'm sure they had um, awe in, in belief at some level of Jesus rising from the dead, but at the same time, they must have been thinking, Jesus, you just said all authority belongs to you? Wait a second, you were just killed. You were just betrayed by a disciple that you chose who was with us for years. You were just led through this sham trial, convicted unjustly. You were just uh, tortured and killed. You hold all authority? And I think this authority claim might have sounded off to the disciples and, and I think would have sounded off to me in that time because we usually would associate having authority with comfort and with safety because that's how we would normally we would use authority for those purposes, right? It's the king who has the best security. It's the king who gets the best food. So the fact that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, having all authority would have been mistreated and killed in, in such a way like this would have seemed contradictory. But God's authority was never lost, never diminished through the crucifixion and suffering of Christ. Where can we see this? I want to pick two events in the, in the um, events leading up to this passage that show us that God's authority, total control, was in place, even in the suffering of Jesus. First, Judas, in Matthew 26, we read one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought to betray him. We pick up this story a little bit later in Matthew 27. Judas had changed his mind, if you remember, went to the temple, threw the coins down in the temple. And the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with it the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. The exact amount of silver that was, that was paid to Judas was a fulfillment of prophecy from hundreds of years earlier 
as a chief priest deliberated and decided to buy a potter's field with the blood money. Again, this prophecy was fulfilled. Second example, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Psalms 22:18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The fulfillment in Matthew 27. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garment among them by casting lots. So Psalm 22, written thousands of years, somewhere around a thousand years before Christ, prophesied that the garments of the Messiah would be divided and lots would be cast for his clothing. So think of this. And when it when it seemed darkest, when it seemed most likely to the disciples that God was losing hold of his authority. At the moment where the devil was working through sinful men to kill and crucify the king of kings and the greatest injustice ever, in the moment where the disciples see that one who Jesus chose, who had been among them, betrayed him, the chief priests then, in that moment, reach into the bag and pull out the exact amount that was prophesied. And in that moment, God was reigning in total control. And as the chief priests deliberated together to buy a potter's field, in that decision, God, who holds all authority, was fulfilling his prophecy. Even as Jesus was crucified, hanging on the cross in the darkest of moments, the hands that cast lots and divided his clothing were fulfilling the will of God. By the will of God, Jesus defeated death with death. He took the darkest moment and turned it into the brightest hope. And he took what the devil meant for evil and turned it on its head, triumphing over the devil, rising again and stripping the strength of evil and the fear of death away. I think of Pilate's claim to Jesus, his, his warning. Jesus um, stood before Pilate, if you remember, and Pilate says, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus, one of the few times that he speaks during the trial, in effect says, no. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. At no point in the suffering and in the crucifixion and the death of Christ did the total authority of God slip at all. And now Jesus resurrected, has ascended to heaven, and now is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but the age to come, Ephesians 1.21. As David says in, in 1 Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. That is our first truth, that Jesus has total authority over all spiritual and all natural powers, even in the middle of suffering and death. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus, rising from the dead, claiming all authority, commands the disciples in that authority to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is what's known as the Great Commission. And this is what is given to the disciples here through Jesus has now been given to us through the word of God and is the foundational command of Christ to the church. The primary verb in this phrase is make disciples. We are to make disciples in our going of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them. That's the structure of this passage. 
If we're to obey this and make disciples, we must ask, what is a disciple? How do we define a disciple? Well, disciple is a follower of Jesus. The concept of a disciple is radically Jesus-centered. A disciple believes in Jesus, what Jesus has said and claimed about himself and what he has done. A disciple walks in fellowship with Jesus, and a disciple obeys the commands of Jesus. Jesus speaks of discipleship. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Jesus requires total allegiance. Jesus, who says, all authority has been given to me, says that to be his disciple, you must come under that authority. And he says that a disciple is not greater than his master, that if they hated me, they will hate you, that we can expect suffering and persecution, but in the paradox of the gospel, if we try to avoid that and cling to our life, we will lose it. But if we lay down our life for his sake and for the gospels, we'll find it. And in finding that life, we find Jesus. We find someone who's supremely valuable, that transcends through the circumstances of life, including any suffering. If we look at the first epistle of Peter, chapter 4, verses 13, he says, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So in the darkest moments of our life, when it seems most likely that God has lost control, we rejoice. Why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So that in the end, when the glory of God is revealed and we see clearly what we can't understand now, we can say, I knew it. I knew he was in control. I knew he was working in his authority for his glory and our good. Discipleship is that kind of faith-filled commitment in fellowship with Jesus. Making disciples is what we are to be about. So intrinsically in the nature of being a disciple of Jesus and obeying his commands is to make disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> we follow Jesus, and in following him, we, we obey him to bring others along in that belief. This is the main thing, as Stephen said last week, that we, in the fear of God, persuade others. As we'll look at this next week, that we have been reconciled to God, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of Christ, making God's appeal on behalf of God, pleading with others, imploring others to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This is the reason we're here, to make disciples, to make them here and strengthen them here, and to make them to the extent of the ends of the earth. So we go, we make disciples of all nations. What does all nations mean? The word nations is ethne, from which we get the word ethnic or an ethnic group. And this is where the term, if you've heard the term people group, comes from, is this concept of a nation, the ethne, a people group who share a common culture in language. We can use classifications and definitions like people groups and those divisions as useful tools as we seek to obey the command of Christ to make disciples of all nations. Why did Jesus give here specific instruction? Why did he add to all nations or in Mark to all the world or in Acts 1 to the ends of the earth? 
I think it's because we need that specific instruction because it's going to take intentionality from the church to obey Christ to that extent. It'll take intentionality to bring the gospel to the far reaches of the, the earth. Jesus here is explicitly commanding that we make disciples to all nations. Let me give an illustration here. If you, as part of your job, uh, had a chain of stores and, and your management said, I want you to establish a store in every state in the U.S. You would be right to focus then on the states that don't yet have stores. In fact, that would be a right interpretation of that command to look out and say, okay, what states are there not yet stores? We want to focus and establish stores in those states. And it's a right interpretation of this great commission to say that we need to go and make disciples where disciples are not being made, among peoples, among nations, where this is not yet happening. And this leads us to our second key truth, that Jesus, holding all authority, commands the church to give themselves to make disciples, specifically among the unreached. And this begs the question, should we really emphasize the unreached in this way? Is it right to say that, to say that Jesus commands the church to make disciples specifically among the unreached? I believe so, and I want to give three reasons for that. Reason number one, the call to make the gospel known, to make disciples of all peoples, echoes throughout Scripture. From the covenant of God with Abraham in Genesis, that through the offspring of Abraham, which Paul in Galatians specifically says is a reference to Christ, through the offspring, all nations will be blessed. Through the Psalms, again and again, we hear language like, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. In the prophets, we see the jealousy of God that his name would be known as great among the nations. Again and again, we see phrases like, then they will know that I am the Lord. In the New Testament, we see when the Spirit is poured out in Acts that people of uh, of various nations in Jerusalem hear the gospel through Peter. We see Paul in his heart to take the gospel to places where Jesus is not known. We see in Revelation 7 at the end, people of every nation, of all tribes and tongues and peoples will come around the throne saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then specifically in this passage, we're commanded by Jesus to make disciples, not just strengthen disciples, and that is biblical to strengthen disciples, but here in this passage, we're commanded to make disciples of all nations. And if we remember the context of this command, the world was unreached, except for those who had some interaction with Jesus. The world was unreached. So Jesus is calling them to proclaim this gospel to the unreached world. So is it right to emphasize the unreached, to say that he's calling us to make disciples specifically among the unreached? Reason number one, the call to bring the gospel to all nations echoes throughout Scripture. Reason number two, there is still great need among unreached peoples. What do I mean by unreached? Unreached is a, a classification of people groups that has been made to help the church determine where there's still significant need specifically outside help needed to meaningfully reach this people with the gospel. Technically, that's been determined uh, to be less than 2% evangelical. Is that biblical? No. But is it a useful tool? Yes. 
6% of the world population or 3.24 billion people are unreached. 42% of the world population falls under the categorization of unreached. As an example, 50 million people, the house of people in Niger in Nigeria, 50 million, 0.46% evangelical unreached people. And it's people like this that unless people cross a cultural in language barrier, unless they go, these people will not be meaningfully reached by the gospel, that people will be born and live and die without any uh, likelihood of hearing the gospel or, or even meeting a Christian. Beyond the definition of unreached is a classification frontier people group. And this is Instead of the 2%, it's less than 0.1% evangelical and no known gospel movement. So no known churches planting churches or, or disciples making disciples. So there may be a handful of Christians, but really nothing is happening. 24.8% of the world population, one in four falls into the category of frontier people groups. As an example, the Sheikh people, 234 million people across India, across Pakistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, 0% evangelical, 100% Muslim, no known gospel movement. This is staggering to me. And unless followers of Christ cross cultural and language barriers, millions, no billions will die without hearing the gospel. So is it right to emphasize the unreached? Reason number one, the call to all nations echoes throughout scripture. Reason number two, there is still significant need among all nations. Reason number three, there's a great disparity in resources being committed to meet this need. Out of every 100 missionaries that are sent, four go to unreached peoples. Out of every 100 missionaries that are sent, one goes to frontier people groups. Out of every $100 that's given to missions, not ministry, to missions, $1 goes to ministry among the unreached. And let me just say here that local ministry is totally necessary. It is biblical and necessary to make disciples here, to strengthen disciples here to strengthen the church here. It is right. But as one preacher said, local ministry is totally necessary, but global ministry is tragically neglected. So we emphasize the unreached because we see in the Bible the heart of God for all nations, and we see the great need that still exists, and we see the great disparity in the resources being committed to meet this need. And for that reason, we can say this third key truth that Jesus, holding all authority, has called the church to make disciples specifically among the unreached. Second key truth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. If this, if this concept of you are to make disciples, and to make disciples of the caliber that we talked about, of the caliber that Jesus defines a disciple, someone who lays down their life to follow him, if that sounds impossible... I think we're on the right track. I think we need to ask, like Nicodemus, like, how can a man be born again? How can we make disciples? Well, Jesus gives us two descriptives in this passage of how we are to make disciples. We're to baptize them, and we are to teach them. This will lead us to our third truth, that Jesus, in his authority, has mightily saved us and offers us salvation to the world. So verse 19b, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever asked, why did Jesus say baptizing them here? Why baptize them? It's one of those things that I look at and I'm like, if I were 
if I were the one saying this or writing this, I don't think I would have used baptizing. I think Jesus used it because baptism presents a full picture of the gospel. It, it functions as a final and public step of obedience in the conversion of those from the world to Christ. In the Gospels and in Acts, baptism, along with belief and repentance, is frequently used in the call to respond to the Gospel. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, Peter says in Acts, for the forgiveness of your sins. So baptism is the outward symbol of the beginning of beginning a life of faith in Jesus Christ, and the outward symbol of a public joining of the family of God. It's symbolic of the new birth that is offered in the gospel. What is this new birth? It's that we're justified and forgiven in Christ. That because of our sin, because of the wrong we've done, because we've not honored Christ as we should, we deserve shame. We deserve guilt. We deserve to be under the wrath of God. And that is a heavy burden. And the need of our souls and the need of the souls of the unreached is to hear that Jesus has come and that he has given us complete forgiveness, that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, that God has given us his son, a perfect and complete sacrifice, and that we can stand at peace with God, that although he may discipline us in love, that he does not hold us under his wrath, that although we deserve shame, he's given us the honor of being called sons and daughters of God, that although we may deserve guilt. We are cleared and clean and right with God. But the gospel doesn't stop here. We must remember this. The gospel doesn't stop with forgiveness. We can't forgive, forget that the good news includes that we're made new, that we're united with Christ. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a fulfillment of the, the prophecies of the new covenant, as in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So there's a fundamental change that happens when we believe in Christ, that we are not just forgiven and stand right with God, but the core of our identity changes. It's now defined, in the most important sense, it's defined by our union with Christ, by the fact that the Spirit of God dwells within us and we are made new. If you're like me, you can, you can struggle with the claims of this command, the, the significant claims of Scripture regarding the power and the effect and the implications of the gospel. How can this be if those we have admired have fallen away? Or how can this be, perhaps, if, if you are struggling with and entrenched in patterns of sin? Well, Paul speaks to this in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. And it's on the authority of Christ. It's on the authority of Jesus, who has all authority, that we say, he who has died to sin has been freed from the power of sin. That we've been made new, that we are raised with him in newness of life. 
And as Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the third truth, that Jesus in his authority has mightily saved us and offers us this salvation, offers this salvation to the world, that Jesus in his authority has mightily saved us and offers this salvation to the world. To this point, in making disciples, we baptize them in the name of the triune God, and we teach them to observe the commands of Christ, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What has Jesus commanded? Well, namely, to repent and believe the gospel. It says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe in me. But the text says, not just the commands regarding the gospel, but it says, all that I have commanded you. So it's not just the commands to repent and believe, but it's the other commands that Jesus came, came and gave, that he came and established a standard of righteousness that even raised the bar from the Torah. Instead of saying, don't commit adultery, he said, don't look at another with lustful intent. He says, love your enemies. And in this majestic way, he shows us and he proclaims this, this beautiful picture of loving God and loving our neighbor. Note that Jesus doesn't just say that we're to teach them the commands, but we are to teach them to observe all the commands. This is where we should feel the impossibility of the task again. But remember that Jesus, in his authority, has mightily saved us, and he offers this mighty salvation. This salvation includes the grace of God, the Spirit of God within us, that as we grow in belief and we live in surrendered, faith-filled obedience in him, that we can, we can see uh, disciples of Christ and ourselves obeying the commands that Christ has given. Romans 8.4 says that God sent Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, that he has given us through the Spirit what it takes to obey the commands of Christ. Galatians, but I say, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The, the gospel is effective. It is powerful. It is, in fact, the power of God to salvation, and there's hope in this gospel for real in meaningful life change and victory over sin and obedience to sin in this life. And this power lies in the fact that Jesus is with us. That the very Spirit of God dwells within us. And this takes us to the second half of verse 20. Jesus saying to the disciples, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. He holds all authority. His gospel is powerful and effective and armed with this truth. We are commissioned to go with him to see the gospel brought to the ends of the earth. What more can we ask? We get him. We get the one who holds all authority, the one who's gone before us, who has walked through temptation and suffering and, yes, even death. The one who now gives us the privilege of all privileges to participate with him in seeing his kingdom advanced. He will always be with us. He is not distant. His presence is not limited by time. His presence is not limited by suffering. He is not powerless. He is not unavailable. He says, I will never leave you 
nor forsake you, so that we can confidently say, right, Hebrews? So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So here we see our fourth and final truth, that Jesus, who is reigning above all things, promises to be with us to the end of the age. And I don't know of a, a better passage that can encapsulate these truths from a different angle than Romans 8. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more. Knowing all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let us exalt in Jesus who has total authority over all spiritual and all natural powers, even in the middle of suffering and even in death. Let us exalt in Jesus, who's mightily saved us and offers this salvation to the world. And let us exalt in Jesus, who's promised to be with us to the end of the age. And let us courageously obey Jesus, who commands us to give ourselves to make disciples of all nations. The application of this passage is not me asking you to pack up and move to India, nor is it me asking you to empty your bank account. It's actually far more radical than that. And people hear of our plans, and I think the tendency just in our culture is to think, wow, that's really radical. But the reality is the call of the gospel and the application of this passage is actually far more radical. It's total allegiance to Jesus. It's coming under the total authority of Jesus that we lay all before him. That in in front of the cross, we open our hands and say, God, what would you have me do in obedience to this text? Maybe it is going. Would Jesus lead you to go? Millions and billions of people, right? Wait to hear the gospel. This is the command of God to make disciples. And it still needs to be completed. Unreached peoples are often unreached for a reason. These are difficult places, difficult to access, difficult people. There's desperate need for those who will go, who will prepare well, who will persevere as God allows them. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So some of you today may have never thought this was a possibility to go. The specific application would be to say to God, God, would you have me go? I will follow you. I'm willing. Whether he leads that way or he doesn't. Are you willing to say that? Perhaps some of you know that you are being called to go. Would you take the next step? Would you talk to the elders of our church? Or pray, what is that next step for me as I, as I, as I take steps towards going? 
Perhaps it's in sending. William Carey, before he went to India in 1793, a long time ago, famously said, I will go down if you will hold the ropes. This is not an individual commission. The whole church must take ownership of this. And those who go will need spiritual and emotional and practical support of the body. So will you pray? Will you provide that spiritual support? Will you pray, one, that God will send forth laborers into the harvest? Will you pray that God will be with those who you have sent and with those who have gone from other churches? It's not without spiritual and natural opposition that this task will be completed. Three, will you pray for unreached peoples? Joshua Project, I think it's joshuaproject.net, but if you just Google Joshua Project, has a tremendous app and is a tremendous resource for praying for unreached peoples throughout the world. Will you give? Third John 5.8 says, Beloved, it is the faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This work is not possible without financial help. Whether that's that God in, in the past has prompted you to give to someone, that you follow through in that. Whether it's your continued faithful giving to someone you are supporting in this or considering starting to support. Will you lay your resources before God and ask him how you can make an investment into the kingdom of God in this way? <clears throat> We've been given a great privilege to be commissioned by Jesus Christ. Tell me something more exciting than being fellow workers on this task to see the light of Christ brought into the darkest places that are without the hope of the gospel. God throughout church history has raised up workers for this purpose, workers who go and workers who send, and he will continue to do so, and, and may God raise up many from this church. In closing, I want to take a brief look at one of these workers that God raised up many years ago. In Scotland, John Payton was born in 1824. <clears throat> he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, these islands were inhabited by cannibals. The two missionaries who went before him were killed on the beach. How would you like that to be your assignment? He faced constant threat of sickness and danger, yet he had unshaking confidence in the total authority of Christ. At one point, he was surrounded by people, the locals who were wishing to kill him. And he says, reading from his autobiography here, they encircled us in a deadly ring. One kept urging another to strike the first blow and fire the first shot. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus, and I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God, and I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me, and as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, nor a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow, or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all the power in heaven and on earth. John Payton would in, uh, end up seeing incredible fruit in his life, but not without deep suffering. His wife and his child would die on the island. He had co-workers who were killed on the island. He had people who had to leave due to extreme difficulty. He faced continual threat of death. And yet, through all of this, at the end of his life, this is what he wrote. I have probably had my full share of abuse from the enemies of the cross. And not 
inconsiderable burden of trials and afflictions in the service of the Lord. Yet here, as I lay down my pen, let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can be spend, can spend or be spent, and that if God gave back my life to me to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar of Christ, that he may use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially among those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. Nothing that has been endured and nothing that can now befall me makes me tremble. On the contrary, I deeply rejoice when I breathe the prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field, and that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying the gospel, carrying Jesus and his gospel into the heart of the heathen world. God gave his best, his son, to me, and I give my best, my all, to him. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And we will not be fools to give our lives with abandon, whether in going or sending, to the one who gave his best, his son, for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you that you are the one who is reigning in total authority over the world. And yet in that, you have commissioned us and given us the privilege of taking your gospel, not just here as we should, as we ought, but to the extent of the ends of the earth, to see light shined in dark places that are in desperate need of your truth. And I pray that you would raise up goers from among this church and this network and this region, and you'd raise up senders and that the church together, in obedience to this corporate command, would embrace this call to see your gospel go forth to all nations. And I pray this in your name. Amen.